Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast from NASPEGAN. We are super excited to uh, talk to Dr. Ben Gold today. I'm Peter Liu. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist from Nationwide Children's Hospital. And I'm Jason Silverman. I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist at Stollery Children's Hospital. Dr. Gold probably needs no introduction. I feel like he knows every single member of NASPEGAN, but he's the incoming president of NASPEGAN. He is the foremost rapper and DJ within NASPEGAN, and also happens to be a leading expert in a variety of different topics across pediatric GI, ranging from H. pylori to reflux to all kinds of stuff. So today we met with him to talk about H. pylori and talk about some of the controversies around testing and treatment and his general approach in managing patients with H. pylori. It's going to be an amazing episode. Can't wait for you to hear it. Dr. Gold, thank you so much for joining us on Bowel Sounds today. First, just to start off, so I've heard that in the past, you are a DJ, and I DJ a little bit on the side, but I think you are a real DJ, and on the radio and at events, tell us more. So, thank you so much for having me on this uh, um, program on Bowel Sounds, and I'm really honored to be the second or whatever order I get put in in terms of these podcasts. Um, I think it's an incredible opportunity uh, for members to learn about different topics, but as well as some of the personal background of uh, um, the society leaders. So my whole life started really in, in part of the music business in mass com. I was a mass communications major, psychology major, um, originally started on the East Coast and finished up at Cal, uh, Berkeley. Um, and I started DJing in high school and, uh, and then through college, um, was involved with, um, the, um, production company at UC Berkeley, uh, booking and promoting shows. Um, we had a radio show and I was program director at UC Berkeley's radio station, KALX, um, <laughs> 90.1 FM, oh, man. um, UC Berkeley. And then we had a show in the morning called Music for the People. Um, and then a talk show directly there afterwards. Um, I did some commercial radio, but really it was more just doing parties. So I yep. DJed at clubs, um, I DJed, um, mobile stuff. And continued that all through uh, medical school and um, and residency. And actually, it was interesting at the time, since music, really, it wasn't live bands, it was DJs. Mm -hmm. I think most of the major high school proms that year in the Bay Area, before I went off to medical school, I did. And <laughs> the counselors were like, oh, the DJ, all oh, the kids love him, and he's going to medical school. What a great role model. So, yep. I mean, so I got the opportunity to... Um, uh, you know, to talk to the kids afterwards right, and, and right. they're, yeah. And so it was, it was pretty, I, I think by the time I was in medical school, I would get phone calls, the old answering machine on Tuesday or Wednesday, like, where are you, where are you spending this weekend? Where are you spending this weekend? Oh, and then incredible. boom, everybody would, uh, you know, people would be there at the parties. Oh, that's um, awesome. And, and it has a very interesting segue in terms of what, so giving a talk now is no different than DJing a party. And I think that the best DJs aren't just understanding music. 
um, using your ears and knowing what blends and what mixes with weather. It's also reading your crowd. Yeah. Um, we used to have, uh, we had a huge, because Berkeley's, you know, multicultural, very diverse. And um, we used to have a, a the multicultural affairs department used to have a party every year. So, I mean, I had to play everything from salsa to reggae, um, you know, this hardcore, you know, hip hop. It was rap back then. Um, and and in order to kind of please every all the different genres and and so you had to be able to kind of understand and read who you're at and you know you're you're playing one mixed into another and you see everybody that's sitting around and talking okay you're not um you know you're not right. getting to the crowd and it's the same thing when i give a talk if i'm seeing the people in the front row falling asleep okay something isn't going over well with these people right so yeah. so there's a whole lot of the same type of similarities in terms of you know spinning records to people and interacting with people it got a little weird when i had some of my patients coming up to me um at the club <laughs> that i used to dj out of dc's hey doc can I talk to you a little bit about, uh, no, I don't think so. Um, so yeah, that can get a little awkward. And then it was really, it was a decision. Once you have kids, things change. And it was after my son was born and, um, uh, three weeks did after he was born, I did my last function and that was kind of it. Um, in, in your career, obviously we talked about even within GI, you've, you've had a variety of clinical interests over time. You know, you talked about H. pylori, uh, and you've been involved in GERD and neurodigestive disorders right. and IBD and improved care now. How did you get involved in all of these all of different these? projects and, and clinical areas? It's a good question. My first thing is I get, when I see something in a patient that, okay, I can't find it anywhere or, and I'm an epidemiologist by, you know, when I first got back to Atlanta, I did the epidemic intelligence service. Thank God I didn't get sent to anywhere weird um, or Ebola or anything like that. But I, you know, learned what field epidemiology was. So I, I think about problems that I see in my patients and how it reflects populations. And, and I came there to start the H. pylori program. It was like a gift, um, right out of fellowship. And I'm at the CDC running the H. pylori program because they sort of knew that, that it was something they needed to get involved with, but weren't sure they wanted to spend governmental FTE dollars. And this young whippersnapper who didn't know that I needed to actually get salary support for it was like, sure, no problem. But, I mean, literally within a year and a half of getting to Atlanta, I'm at this meeting at uh, the Arctic Investigations Program at the at in Alaska ran in Anchorage with like the freaking H. pylori experts from all around the world that I was running. Like David Graham from Texas, Marty Blazer, all the people that like I read about and I'm like I worshipped when I was a fellow. It's like, okay, these guys are coming to me and talking. Anyway, and but it was because of a, an issue of iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia. Alaska Native population. And Ray Yip, who was the proverbial like CDC, um, looks like he came right out of Berkeley or, or Oregon, you know, just constant backpack. You know, he's always like little rugged appearance and he sort of kind of talks like this, man. And he's a long distance runner, man. And everything's just really cool, man. Um, but he and he's the lead author, but I got a New England Journal article out of that uh, out of that initial meeting, and then a whole bunch of studies um, thinking about that whole question. So I think it's just I, I'm one of those people that const- I'm an instigator at heart, and 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 I if if something can't be explained, I don't like you just telling me this is the way it is. I like to understand how people think um, and and how things work. 
the Ace Pylori story, and, and it continues. We were finally getting an assay set up and then hopefully moved to then CLIA, so it'll be a reference lab at um, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta to do resistance testing. And we can do it off of paraffin blocks and we can do it off of bias, biopsy specimens as well um, because that's a huge issue. Um, but it, it evolved through all that time. And I, you know, my my lab experience, because at the time, Ann Griffiths, who's getting the Schwachman Award tomorrow um, at NASPEGAN, was still um, part-time because she had little kids and she was going to do her epidemiology. And I want, I was interested in epidemiology at that time too, but there was nobody there to mentor me. So I was in a lab working with ferrets and working with thin layer chromatography overlay binding assays, you know, playing with glycolipids. But that's the, that's the, the powerful thing about research is understanding research methodology. If you ask questions and you can frame it in the standpoint of how you want to examine it. Doesn't matter what discipline, because it can be applied to other things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, yeah, I didn't have any epi background, but I knew about H. pylori. I knew the, uh, how to ask the questions, and and I was unique in that I was a pediatric gastroenterologist. And at that time, there weren't a whole lot of pediatric GI folks who were doing good H. pylori. And then that kind of evolved into acid peptic diseases as a whole. Um, the adult guys used to joke and say, yeah, we invited you to come to the meetings because you're like the comic relief. Um, <laughs> so there would be this whole panel of adult doctors and then there was me, um, the one pediatrician. And, and, and again, it was like, you know, yeah, well, reflux, kids spit up and then it gets better. And we actually were the first to show that, you know, reflux may not be outgrown in everybody. And, and, um, and again, it's just, there's questions that you ask and, and, or things that you see and you're like, well, I see this observation, but nobody's done it. And, um, and, and then as a parent, that's what you want to know about your kid. Okay. So he's got this condition now, what's he going to be like five years from now, 10 years from now? And, we don't do a good job of, there's so many things that we take care of that we haven't done a good job of just characterizing the epidemiology, characterizing the phenotypes, characterizing the natural history. So going back a little bit to kind of your first passion, mm-hmm. so H. pylori, I guess, you know, so you mentioned that you guys are developing a way to look at susceptibilities. And so, Correct. you know, the recent NASPIG and SPN guidelines make a big deal about how Correct. to test non-invasive testing versus, you know, doing an endoscopy and biopsy and testing that way. And so can you speak a little bit more about, you know, because I think guidelines have always recommended, you know, adjusting antibiotics based on the susceptibilities in your region. And we don't really know what that is. So yeah, tell tell us more about that. So I think part of the whole problem in the world of H. pylori is it's been managed by typically diagnosed by and treated by gastroenterologists who not are not always necessarily good infectious disease people. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it from the standpoint of, oh yeah, it's a bacteria. This is an infectious disease that happens to cause gastrointestinal inflammation, gastroduodenal inflammation in particular. And most infectious diseases, not all, we'll take your infections aside, but most infectious diseases, you find the organism, you find what it's susceptible to, you treat it with what it's susceptible to with, you know, the least amount of dosing so that you don't confer resistance and then you're done. Right. We didn't do that with H. pylori. You just, you find it and you throw a whole bunch of stuff at it and hope it gets better um, and or hope it goes away. Um, and so as our understanding of this, and even with the naysayers saying that, well, maybe not all H. pylori were bad uh, or um, um, kind of raised question about things, 
the change in how we approach it came about yeah. in terms of thinking about it as an infectious disease. We're behind here, Canada and Mexico. We don't have a national reference center where you can send specimens, get your mm-hmm. resistance testing, and then get we. The CDC was going to do that, but again, government um, politics and 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 agenda changes. So they didn't. So that the the funding was no longer there, um, and nobody's found it a, a, a major issue yet um, in terms of funding it in in the United in the United States. But at least in Europe, um, each many of the countries have a national. So France has a national. You know, antimicrobial resistance lab that you have a, you have a bug, you send it there, it gets, you know, susceptibility mm-hmm. testing, and then it gets treated. Um, and there was a huge, because it was a joint guidelines, there was a huge European, and you know, you can't argue against that. It's just, if you read the, the fine print, there's qualifiers that we don't really have that right. capacity yet in the U.S. Um, and if you fail your initial treatment, you should think about, that you may have a, res- a resistance. Adherence is by and far the the primary driver of of treatment failure, but resistance is is rising incredibly. And as we've seen with lots of organisms, I mean, we have diseases now that we didn't have ten or fifteen years ago: uh, vancomycin resistant enterococcus, C diff infection, which again is not just dietary but widespread use of of, of antibiotics. And H. pylori, because it is the type of organism and is so good at mutating and adapting and taking what the environment gives because it sees it first when living in the stomach, um, is able to, to acquire resistance very easily. Um, so we were probably not probably we were ahead of the time in terms of sort of the overall recommendations. They are guidelines. They're not dogma um but hopefully the the capacity to do that will will get better um and that we'll be able to at least clary which tends to be the most primary driver of treatment failure um and that's why that came out of the guidelines the guidelines make it pretty clear that we should really try to avoid non-invasive testing for a variety of disorders maybe just consider for like itp um and i guess for like pediatricians who might be listening to it's so like, why should we not use like serological testing or non-invasive, t- like a stool uh, H. pylori antigen to start? So that's a great question. Um, so to just sort of take a step back, there's two main categories of tests um, for H. pylori, non-invasive tests and invasive tests, which involve endoscopy and biopsy. In the non-invasive tests, and I can tell you having... Pre- participated in part in all the guidelines from the original NASPGAN guidelines in, in 2000, the Canadian guidelines, which actually they beat us to the punch. That was 1999. Um, uh, um, and Phil Sherman, Sander Van Zanten was uh, an adult gastroenterologist was, was part of that conference. The one thing of the many, just cause, and again, it, it, it's interesting because guidelines are reflective of what's the best available evidence. And if there's still an evolving, uh, literature of, of, of each, of the specific field, then it may not complete completely real time. Um, but at that time, of all the things we disagreed about with respect to H. pylori, serology testing was the one thing we completely agreed about. And it was that antibody testing, no matter how good your test, is not appropriate for the clinical um, env- uh, environment or the clinical practice, in part because it's 
a reflection of exposure does not incur, uh, not Im- imply um, active infection because you really want to test for active infection. And antibodies can persist for a long period of time. If you look at the relationship with gastric cancer and when WHO classified H. pylori as a class one carcinogen, there were nine case control and nested case control studies. In seven of those, the bug was gone. Mm-hmm. The bug was gone. The antibodies persisted. But when you've got a, a, a pretty extensive atrophy of the stomach, there's no mucosa for the bacteria to live and, and replicate and do its thing. So it's gone. But the key question, and again, as a pediatrician, I keep, you know, I asked that in because we had by that time already found a few children that had a gastric um, uh, atrophy, had intestinal metaplasia. Um, and it's like, okay, there's nothing in the literature that says that how long does it take to cause gastric cancer? And then talking to the pathologist, when is it really reversible? That's the same thing that the esophageal guys, when is Barrett's esophagus truly a point where, you know, you need to worry about it? Uh, you know, long segment Barrett's, circumfer- circumferential. I mean, there's so there's a lot more literature in that aspect. So, uh, serology clearly was something that it's a marker of past or present. And there's such variability in assays and having done, we had our own in-house assay that we developed and we tested it in populations against endoscopy all around the world. And it's performed very differently in different populations. Um, so anyway, clearly antibody t- uh, testing, not for use in clinical practice, stool test, um, and there was a polyclonal initially and now a monoclonal um, assay and then urea breath test, um, which can be also used as a test for cure. Oh, yeah. Treat it like an infectious disease. You find the infection, you treat it, and then you test and see if the infection is gone um, because symptoms don't necessarily always correlate with the infection. And then in terms of invasive testing, endoscopy and biopsy, and really because you want to figure out what's going on with the child and see there may be other things that are causing symptoms. And I can't tell you how many times people will find H. pylori incidentally, and then I'll get an email or, hey, would you treat? And I'm like, my feeling is if you're going to put a child through endoscopy and you find H. pylori, you probably need to treat it. Um, I'm not one that would lead it. That's if, you know, that's, if that's how you decide you want to practice, that's how you want to practice. But I would, I would treat the infection. But serology, yes, was clearly from the very first guidelines through now, not recommended. Because we've done enough studies and we actually did, I was sort of the, the blessed with the benefit of doing a study with the National University of Taipei in Taiwan and they had sera. So moms um, at court at the time of birth and then babies at, at birth, one, two, three, six, and 12 months and two years. And so we did a study and we actually had, we got our assay validated against, um, where we did IgM and IgG and we looked at the, the course of antibody course because at, at least through up until that point, people don't really, and they still don't really understand what happens with the early infection. There, there, if you talk to and you listen to the 2020 primetime when Barry Marshall was interviewed, or actually his wife was interviewed after he did his self inoculation experiment, um, you know, he described the bloating and the, and the dyspepsia over the couple of days afterwards, but nobody really 
really knows what happens in the early and onset. And it's probably not like that because you're getting it from a relative. It's seeding and eventually it sets up persistence. And this bacteria is smart enough to know that it's going to kind of get there, do its thing, start replicating before you really get an inflammatory response. And there's been studies, both animal and human studies that have noted that. So having done stuff around the world showed that you really can't use the antibody response. Um, and, and even though it's, it's, it's tempting as in primary care, it's simply a marker of the infection. And most of the commercial assays haven't been validated in kids. So aren't good. We actually had a JID journal of infectious disease paper where we compared, uh, actually it took a while to get it published because there was some flack, but four different commercial assays in our own in-house research assay against um, upper endoscopy. And they clearly performed and depending upon ethnicity, where the patients were from, and we had samples from Alaska, from Bolivia, from we had all over and, and all with endoscopy. And it was just all over the board. So clearly... Um, serology not to use. And in the primary care setting, you're probably delaying evaluation, diagnosis, and management um, if the child's symptomatic enough to do some kind of testing. So um, another question about non-invasive testing. So we talked about how serologies really have no use in uh, this in this infection. Um, but in terms of like a stool H. pylori antigen, are there certain scenarios that let's say, so in, in Columbus, we have a very a significant Somali population. There's a, we are seeing a lot of H. pylori disease in our Somali children. Yeah. Um, if there's a sibling who has it and then you prove it by biopsy, the other sibling has the same symptoms. The mom's like, we don't want to do another endoscopy. Is there, can you just do a test? You know, what, would you ever make any exceptions or is it always that we need an endoscopy to really prove it before we treat? So... There's two ways to answer it. From the clinical practice guidelines, there's no data that suggests that unless the child's symptomatic, then you um, you don't do any testing at all. If the child, the, the sibling is symptomatic, then at least doing a non-invasive test would be reasonable, particularly a, an accurate test for active infection like breath test or like stool test. Um, in refractory infection, and in this, this is where I my epidemiology comes in and you're pretty sure that they're adherent. So typically if there's on a second course or third course of therapy, I had the nurse calls at two weeks to make sure or at a week that are you taking your medicine? Cause adherence is huge and it's hard enough taking three different drugs um, at different regimens. Um, and you, there's no resistance. Then you need to look at the family scenario and there's lots of infectious disease. And this is an enteric infection. It's um, fecal oral, oral, oral and gastro oral transmission. And it lives in families. And the more, and particularly if you've got children in the family under the age of five, um, higher risk to be transmitted amongst the siblings. And so there, one could argue that there's the potential, you know, to, test and treat. If one index case has it, had the bug on endoscopy, then you could test everybody else. And I typically, if it's, if I've got a difficult to treat infection and, you know, parents are screaming at us because it keeps coming back and there are other people in the family, I'll test the other family members. Um, again, stool test is the easiest one to do. We do breath tests in the office as well. You mentioned before that, uh, you know, 
in the history of treating H. pylori, we've just kind of thrown the kitchen sink at the bug, tried to figure out what works. And even now, I think for lots of people practicing GI, lots of people in primary care, they look at their recommendations and there's, there's triple combinations, there's quadruple combinations with, without bismuth, there's all these different combinations. Um, how do you uh, explain or navigate the differences, for instance, between pediatric and adult recommendations in terms of like the most recent guidelines? Good question. The So the ACG guidelines, um, Bill Che, who's chief of medicine at um, at, at Michigan, um, also dear friend and was one of my sort of early mentors um, in the process. Um, and his wife happened to live in Atlanta uh, or be from Atlanta. So comes down there frequently, um, is the author for the ACG guidelines. And, and they're not two big differences. I think the, the, what's clear is triple therapy for at least 10 to 14 days is best. Longer the treatment, the better. Whether PPI based or in the business based therapy, there haven't been any real head to head trials in kids. There have been some in adults. There have been smaller studies in Europe and in Asia in terms of treatment trials comparing to, but at least 10 to 14 days of uh, PPI-based therapy. And then the antibiotics that are typically most commonly used are flagyl, metronidazole, um, clarithromycin or biaxin, and amoxicillin. Um, for the older kids, tetracycline. If you look at um, worldwide antimicrobial resistance patterns, the least likely to have resistance is amox then tetracycline, um, then uh, clarithromycin, then metronidazole. And so people were like, well, why do you steer towards metronidazole-based therapies? You can actually overcome resistance of metronidazole. Once you've got an infection that's resistant to clary, any macrolide, it'll be resistance to. So you need to stay away from that. So triple therapy, 10 to 14 days, then you wait six to eight weeks, not immediately, and then you retest for cure. Um, you mentioned it's hard to stay on multiple medications for, for your 10 to 14 days. How, when you're in your practice, how do you promote medication adherence when you're, when you're managing these cases? Lots of hand wringing and prayer. No, um, we, uh, I mean, it's really, it's just talking to the family about the risks of missing doses and um, recurrence of infection. And one of the best, um, I think examples we had, I was, CDC was involved, um, uh, in, collaboration with PAHO, the Pan American Health Organization, with looking at safe water hygiene in areas where there was poor infrastructure um, and um, poor water decontamination. So high, you know, enteric infection, cholera, salmonella, shigella. Um, and in also collaboration with Procter & Gamble, these safe water vessels um, that use sodium hypochlorite um, with an instruction and education It's that's linguistically and culturally sensitive so that they can understand that you need this for drinking, washing, preparing food um, uh, to avoid um, enteric infection. So we did a basically a really cool study where we went down two different villages demographically, similar, similar in number, similar in age distribution, and we tested everybody in the villages. It was like 90% um, infection rate in both villages. And then we treated everybody um, in one village with antibiotics um, and one village um, uh, sorry, we treated both villages and then one village we put the safe water vessels in and then the other village we didn't. And we looked at infection recurrence and it was dramatic 
at how rapid the infection was acquired in the village that didn't have the safe water vessels. One of the interesting sidelines of that study was actually because the the health workers who spoke Quechua, which is the the language um, of the of the native um, uh, Bolivians, um, would hand out vitamins sort of as reward, and and they would give them. It was almost like TB therapy. They would give them their medications. Sometimes that didn't always happen, and it really. At somewhere between 88 and 90% um, uh, adherence, you would get almost 100% eradication rate. And it dramatically dropped when you got below 88%. Mm. So I try to explain to people that if you take the majority of your medicines, you're probably going to get rid of it. But if you drop below, you risk the bacteria persisting. You risk the bacteria of, of actually acquiring resistance. And then you think this is hard. Just wait till the next time we have to do a treatment. And long-term risk potentially of ulcers and cancer. Um, so that's how trying to stress that. Um, and it's hard. And it's hard because the drugs are not always easy. Flagyl gives you a metallic taste. Um, clarithromycin has some dysmotility effects on the stomach. There's obvious reasons why we shouldn't treat H. pylori if it's not uh, necessarily causing a problem. But, you know, people have sometimes brought up things like if we treat H. pylori, maybe, or if there's less H. pylori, maybe that increases our uh, likely to have reflux, for example, or allergic conditions, or I found something on even PubMed that maybe if we have lower H. pylori uh, rates, we are more likely to be obese. What are your thoughts about that kind of stuff? So that's a gr- really good question. There's there's interesting data with respect to the whole GERD perspective, I think was pretty much put to rest. And it was really where um, uh, the infection was primary localized mm-hmm. and the pattern or distribution of inflammation in the stomach mm-hmm. in terms of, of more increased risk for reflux afterwards. And it was probably uh, occurring while they were infected, but the focus was on H. pylori. Um, I can't tell you how many patients have gotten rid, had bad reflux, and then I finally tested them and that H. pylori got rid of the H. pylori and the reflux got better. And there's, there's data actually to, to suggest that. So I think that um uh had has been pretty much put to rest simply based on the pattern or phenotype of of gastric inflammation with respect to atopy and asthma there's some interesting um mouse models that have looked at um the inflammatory phenotype in early infection in children um versus um adults we've actually described it as well um there's a somewhat of a different phenotype and potential plausible for driving a TH2 response. But people don't typically spontaneously clear H. pylori. Once it's there, it's there. Um, and I think more importantly, H. pylori is a marker of overall infrastructure, hygiene, um, and our, our microenvironment. Right. And as the increase in allergies and asthma and, and allergic disease has gone up and atopic disease has gone up, for multiple reasons, which we could spend another hour talking about. And H. pylori overall prevalence has gone down in part, you know, better water hygiene, less crowding, mm-hmm. et cetera. Then that more is a, sur- I would say, a surrogate marker of the epidemiology of the two different diseases. And it's easy with, you have enough numbers and with statistics right. to show an association. Right. The difference is 
association doesn't mean causation. And that's really where it's important to to make that distinction. Yeah. So probably, I mean, so BMI, developed countries, different diet. Correct. Yeah. So. Correct. And, And along those lines, there's really been some very cool studies that have looked at sort of and really focusing on the human microbiome and evolution evolution of humans. And there's studies on H. pylori back 2,000 years ago, mummies in uh, the Andean mummies. Um, there was work done on actually in um, the glaciers in, in uh, northern Canada and the Alaska, I mean, the, the, the native Canadian population. They found H. pylori and they found ulcers in the stomach. So it, and it's been around for a long, long time. My sense, knowing how this bacteria behaves and how smart it is, it's one of the few microbes that actually can acquire human human gastric epithelial glycolipids on its cell surface to evade the host immune system. Um, Nicola Jones, actually, this was just published not so long ago, and I think they had some uh, social media about it, actually showed that the bacteria can get inside um, lysosomes in this epithelial cell to escape. So this is a really smart bug. Mm-hmm. And it and it's probably been around as long as we have, and as, and as like you know, kind of been this symbiotic relationship, but as humans have evolved, the bacteria has evolved. And as we've done stuff to our bodies that have all of the autoimmune atopic diseases have evolved, unfortunately, we've given this bacteria, you know, so now it's wearing cigarettes rolled up in the sleeve and it's like, <laughs> yeah, come on. Um, <laughs> and it's kicking people's butt. But so I, I think there may have been a period of time and there's a wonderful paper that um, John Atherton, who's from the UK and Marty Blazer published just a few years ago that talked about the evolution of of the human microbiome and H. pylori, that it probably was part of our, uh, in most people, our microbiome early on. People Mm -hmm. didn't live till they were 60 or 70 or 80 years old back then. And they died from a, a, a variety of causes. But but the bug, as we've evolved, the the the, the bug has evolved, um, and that's where we get this this some of the dilemma. I still feel that at least now, you find it, you kill it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Ben, thank you again so much for for joining us today sure. and and spending the time talking about your life, your career, <laughs> your clinical passions. Um, I think I think just that that passion is so evident in everything that you do. Um, and uh, this has been this has been fantastic. Anything else you want to say before uh, we kick you out? No, that's not a good way to say it. But, uh, <laughs> anything else you want to say? I'd like to thank you all for the opportunity. Um, you don't get to talk about yourself and realize that there may be some lessons, at least in my mistakes um, and successes. Um, I think this is a wonderful um, project that hopefully will continue um, to be an enduring project that not just NASPGAN members, but primary care pediatricians of their subspecialists will benefit from. Um, you know, where we live so many such busy lives, having something that is a defined, um, easy to listen to um, learning about a disease process, how to diagnose it, how to treat it. I think uh, it, it just, it's, it's awesome. So thank you for having me and hosting me and the opportunity. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode, if I may say so myself, of Bell Sounds. 
Um, once again, if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show and follow us on social media. So we are at Bowel Sounds on Twitter and Instagram, and we are at Pediatric GI Podcast on Facebook. If you don't already, be sure to follow NASPGAN as well, so you'll get all the latest news about what's coming up. If you like the podcast and you want to get, show us some love, you can click the link on our show page, which will take you to the NASPGAN Foundation page to make a small donation in support of the show. And as always, the discussion, views, and recommendations in this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change over time with advances in the field. All right, so we will see you guys next time. Bye for now. Bye for now.